Taylor Lorenz has been called a lot of things. She's been lauded as one of the nation's preeminent tech reporters for places like the New York Times and the Washington Post. She's also been called the scum of the earth. Told she was ugly, told she was stupid. She received one comment that said, I hope you cry yourself to sleep every night. I hope you take your own life. I hope you live all your days in fear. Why are you still breathing? The person repeated, kill yourself, 11 times. This kind of online harassment is not unique to Taylor. Women are constantly, constantly subjected to it. Female influencers, female journalists, female celebrities, pretty much any woman who dares to have an opinion about just about anything. The International Women's Media Foundation conducted this survey, and they found that 63% of female journalists said they'd been threatened or harassed online. I talk to influencers all the time who are told many of the things that Taylor has been told, who are told to kill themselves, who are told that they're a bad mother, a bad woman, an ugly woman, a disgusting woman, a shameful woman. The internet is a nasty and toxic place to be female. And it's even nastier if you are a person who is extremely online, which is the title of Taylor's latest book. Yes, extremely online. You should all all go grab it. In it, she deftly chronicles the rise of social media's power structure and influence. And she doesn't shy away from the dark places that it has taken all of us. I recently got to chat with Taylor about what it is like to be a woman who is extremely online and covering all of the communities that are extremely online. We got into all of it, from her very public feud with Fox News resident asshole Tucker Carlson, to Gamergate, to why TikTok isn't going anywhere anytime soon. I'm very excited to have you here today because for a long time, I feel like you were the only person, the only reporter out there covering the influencer economy seriously. And now there's there's more reporters, but you felt like a pioneer to me that you were taking influencers and digital creators as seriously as, say, other media outlets were taking CEOs and yeah. politicians. <laughs> yes, that's been my shtick for a long time. That's your <laughs> shtick. That's your, that's your brand. That's your jam. The question I want to start out with is, do you think that influencers are the new celebrities or are they are they already celebrities and will they eclipse the traditional movie and television stars? Well, they are celebrities. Yeah. And I think a lot of movie and television stars are also kind of influencers. And I I think that the line I mean, I wrote about this recently, but especially since COVID and then with the strike, the line between traditional talent and digital talent is pretty much obliterated for I definitely everyone under the age of 30, but, um, you know, increasingly older stars as well. I mean, obviously people like Gwyneth Paltrow um, and Reese Witherspoon and stuff, I would consider them influencers as much as they are, you know, Hollywood stars. So, um, yeah, I think those lines, I, I read about it in my book, but I think the whole notions of sort of like fame has really changed where it used to be like, 
the majority of people were not famous. Um, and then you had this like little like 1% people of like Hollywood stars, like the, you know, actors and musicians. Um, and now I think we all experience kind of like different levels of fame. Fame is more of a commodity. Yes. Yes. I feel like a fame is a commodity and attention yeah. is a commodity yeah. these days. And we're all just trying to trade in the attention economy, whether yeah. you're a person who writes a book or you're a stay-at-home mom who's dressing up in peasant dresses, just hoping to make some goddamn money off your reels. We're all fighting for attention all of the time. Yeah, exactly. You have experienced a lot of attention, both negative and positive. And we've talked a lot on this show about how women get attacked often very, very verbally, violently in digital media. And I want to go back to just some of the times that you have been attacked for stories that you've written and then how you have turned that around actually to improve your platform and improve your career. Yeah. One of the big rifts, the, the big the big blowups that happened was with you and some of the Fox News hosts. Can you talk to me a little bit about what happened there and what you wish you knew now going back to that incident? Oh, gosh, I wish it was just one incident. Um, it, was, it was a lot. It's it was been a many. Slew. It was a, many, many. A slew. It continues. A slew. Um, well, it's funny. Yeah. It's, it's not funny. It's fucking terrible. We are... Perfectly complacent in just frying women alive yep. online, uh, and so take take me back to 2020 to what was what was happening in the world for you then? Yeah, well, I think you know when the pandemic hit, suddenly everybody was sort of forced into digital spaces, and I think started paying attention to the world that I covered for over a decade, which is the sort of like internet world and this world of online influence. Um, and you saw a lot more kind of um, battles for attention and specifically like the far right trying to, you know, weaponize the internet in, in certain ways, which they've obviously did before the pandemic. But I think it was just really exacerbated. Um, so, yeah, I had done a series of stories that um, that made Fox News angry. I mean, I write a lot about like influence and in, like right-wing influencers as well and sort of political influencers um, as well as like traditional influencers, I guess you could say. Um, so Tucker Carlson started attacking me and then it kind of just ballooned out all across Fox News where like Megyn Kelly, like all the, just, I can't even, I don't even know half their names, but just, it was just countless segments. Um, for a while, it was like at least one a week and he would go on these tirades and then it would whip up all of these right wing influencers who kind of like exacerbated the attacks. Um, and I was at the New York Times, which is probably the worst place to be um, when you're going through something like this because they just handled it in the worst possible way. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing that the New York Times did is basically it's like they hang people out to dry. They don't. The the as I explained countless times, and I don't mean my editors, I can't express enough gratitude to my editors at the Times because they are the only reason I didn't quit on the spot in 2020. Um, but but the I think the management there could could learn a lot about how to deal with these campaigns and no fault of their own because, well, I mean, somewhat fault of their own. They run a big media company. They should know this by now. But I think it's a learning curve. And unless you've been through it, it's really hard to understand these dynamics. Um, so 
yeah, the the big problem was that like I was getting all these attacks and, and just blatant lies, like huge lies about me, like totally misrepresenting things, constantly lying about just lies. And um, instead of allowing me to respond, they were like, you cannot say anything. You cannot respond. You cannot put out your own narrative in any way. And their whole thing is like, as long as no one's smearing the New York Times, it's basically fine if they're attacking our reporters. Um, and they would put out like maybe some generic statement like, oh, we stand by Taylor Lorenz reporting or something. But they don't let you as an individual journalist respond. And I do think that that is um, a misguided approach. And I have no idea if they've changed their approach. I don't think they have. But um, one thing that I learned from going through that is that you, it's a battle for narratives. And as any good PR person will tell you, if you don't, you, it's not enough to just be silent in the face of like misinformation you have to kind of present your own narrative and facts and correct people pretty much immediately because if you wait too long you know what is that saying like the lie the lie spreads around the world before the truth puts on its shoes or something um that's very true on the internet it's very true on the internet you again this is the attention economy and you have a very short period to take control of any narrative i think yeah. And I think these big legacy media organizations, they freak out. They do, First of all, they don't understand the the way that these campaigns work since Gamergate. Um, for, our, for our audience, explain what Gamergate is, because we I think we have an audience that is just diving down the rabbit hole of influence in digital media. And I think they're going to get a real kick out of hearing about Gamergate. Gamergate was basically, I mean, I talk about it in my book, but it, it was this... Um, period in 2014 where um, there were these basically these networked harassment campaigns against women in video game journalism, largely led by right-wing influencers um, against women in the video game industry meant to drive progressive women out of the video game industry. And what they did is sort of weaponize media organizations' inability to sort of understand digital culture and to cover things as like both sides with both sides journalism basically where you give as equal credence to bad actors and good actors and um you know it it yeah and it was it sort of provided this blueprint for online harassment and the whole point what it showed is to discredit organizations what you do is you don't just discredit the organization itself you do that through picking off women people of color basically any kind of workers from marginalized groups journalists from marginalized groups and you target them and you sort of smear them. You, la you launch this smear campaign. You destroy their reputation. And then that destroys their reputations. That, that destroys the employer's reputation or that drives the women out of those employers often. I mean, a lot of women lost their jobs in like Gamergate-related campaigns. Um, obviously, that didn't happen to me, but um, it definitely made my life a nightmare for, you know, a really long time. Um, and so... Yeah, it's just that's what was happening in 2020. It's like the New York Times doesn't realize and I think all these legacy media companies don't realize that um, the the reason, for instance, Nicole Hannah-Jones or me or any of the other women who are often targeted at these big media organizations are branded as controversial, that that's an attempt to discredit the Times or that's an attempt to discredit whatever legacy media organization we work at. And the way I think these media organizations approach it is, well, it's grew, you know, oh, well, we don't care if our journalists, uh, you know, um, are the target of smear campaigns and their reputations are destroyed. Um, as long as nobody's talking about us, then we're good. Like our, our brand is fine. Just let, you know, let our journalists um, names be dragged through the mud all day. 
And that's just incredibly fucked up because it it drives women out of the industry. And I was basically like, no, I'm not going to do that. And you did it. You did it. You I think you've you've stood up for yourself in a very beautiful way. And do you feel like you learned how to do that from some watching some influencers from seeing how some influencers do dominate the attention economy? Yeah, I mean, I think I understand the me mechanics of these campaigns very well. Um, and so I think by reporting extensively on online harassment, which I've covered for a really long time, and specifically how content creators manage these harassment campaigns, definitely, I think it's it sort of taught me so much of, of how to deal with the attention economy and how to deal with a smear campaign. Because high-profile women in all walks of life, but especially ones on the internet, are constantly dealing with kind of smear campaigns and things like that. So... Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that women are so often the targets of so much hate online? And it doesn't just come from men. It would be easy to say it just comes from men, but it also comes from other women. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at any snark subreddit. It's all women. Um, I mean, there's look, there's a lot of internalized misogyny. It's all misogyny. It all boils down to misogyny. Sometimes it's also misogyny and racism or misogyny. You know, it, there, it, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, intersecting like bigotry. But but. It, it, the hatred of women on the internet is it's pervasive. And um, I think that's at the core of all of it, especially feminine presenting women. I mean, Tucker Carlson, it's very funny because he, his attacks were never about my journalism. It was always about me as a person. He, he said I was too young to work at the New York Times. I was a silly little girl and I was too young to work at the New York Times. Meanwhile, I'm a woman in my 30s. And, you know, once some a bunch of, you know, my followers were replying like, Taylor's like literally like 35 or something, I, you know, like I, I can't remember what year this was, but, you know, they're like she's she's in her 30s. Like she's not young. And I, you know, I mean, I'm young in the grand scheme of things, but I'm not like some 22 year old where my this is my first job and I'm not too young to work at the New York Times. And I think Tucker thought I was in my 20s at that point. Um, once he realized I was in my 30s, it all flipped to she's too old. Why is this old hag covering tech? <laughs> and you know, they have all these age conspiracies. And I have to say, it's very funny because I I think I am an attractive young, you know, woman. Yeah, and, um, you know, that that enrages a specific type of man um, because it they can't they can't compute. And of course, I don't have children, which is very offensive, certain, mm -hmm. you know, groups of these people. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. it's just you are an attractive young woman who dares not breed. Yeah, and stands up for you. myself, like and who stands up for herself? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's just so funny that women can be only one of two things: we can be a child or we can be a hag. There's no in between for these people, to be honest. And I think that you've stood up for yourself really well, uh, and and moved on in your career. I've seen a lot of careers derailed by this kind of negative attention. You write about Julia Allison in your book. Yeah. She and I came up in media at the same time because I am an old hag. And we. she was the subject of so much vitriol at Gawker and just in the early aughts media world. And I believe one of the first digital influencers 
that I can't imagine being her. What did you find out when you talked to Julia? Julia's story is one that I knew I wanted to tell um, really early on because I think what she went through was horrific and she deserves a vindication and she kind of never got one because she retreated off the internet, basically. Um, she did. She did. And for our for our listeners who don't know who Julia is, who who weren't gossip columnists in the early 2000s, who, who was Julia? Um, yeah. So... Um, it basically, Julia was one of the first multi-platform content creators. Um, she started as a blogger in the mid-aughts um, and then expanded to YouTube. Um, she was very early on Twitter. She was she created content on like lots of different platforms and monetized on multiple different platforms. It's crazy, but she was making a living full-time as a content creator in the year 2008 in New York, like enough to pay her rent in New York in 2007 and 2008 as a full-time content creator. That's really unheard of, and people did not understand what she was doing at the time. Um, she was just eviscerated. Like, she was called a fame whore repeatedly. Oh. Like, there's literally an article in Fast Company that was titled, Julia Allison colon breasts aren't enough. And... Oh. I mean, her original sin against Gawker, which was just brutal to her and wrote some of the most misogynistic stuff I've ever read, um, was that she was promoting the link to her blog in the in the Gawker comments section, yeah. which was, you know, I guess some sort of like big sin. Um, and it was it's insane. And it just, it you know, her and Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, who's a digital marketer, kind of came up around the same era. And I think it's so interesting how the media coverage and the perception of their careers has varied so much because look Gary is very hustle culture and I you know I understand why sometimes people don't love that sort of aspect but he's also a marketer and a, the, the sort of relentless self-promoter as are many men but they're never you know vilified for it whereas they're never considered a media whore no, they're not no one would ever use that language because they're nope. inherently misogynistic exactly and I I feel so bad just for the world the world that i was living in at the time i was a gossip columnist at the new york daily news and everyone was going out together all the time all of the gawker editors all of the uh, up-and-coming bloggers and i just saw so much shit get heaped on julia that was misogynistic and undeserved and i actually in hindsight wish that i had spoken up more and i didn't and I, i've messaged her that and told her that over the years uh, and I feel like she was just constantly beaten down until these platforms tried to drive her out of media. Yeah, and she effectively was driven out of media. And, you know, if you go back and read what Julia Allison said and predicted about the tech and media landscape, every single thing she predicted came true. I, I can't explain as a tech reporter. I've never encountered anyone else like that ever. Like, Usually people make tech predictions or media predictions and they're like 50% right. I mean, sometimes smart VCs are like 70% right, but they're always wrong about some key things. Julia saw this future before anyone else and this media landscape before anyone else, talked about it openly and was just like eviscerated for it. And everything came true. And nobody, and meanwhile, I'm sure you saw this in like 2021 when all the Silicon Valley VCs were finally forced to take this industry seriously and they started calling it the creator economy, basically to distance themselves from previous comments they made about influencers. Um, that her name was totally not, you know, nobody ever mentioned her. 
it was all about like Mr. Beast and David Dobrik. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's never about the women who pioneered this industry, saw the media landscape before anyone else and were driven out of it. Well, and it was women who pioneered this industry in so many ways. I and you talk about this in the book. Mom bloggers were the original digital creators and they get shit on all of the time. Yeah. Don't get me started on that. I, I, it's Oh, like... I want to. Come on. Get, get started on it. Tell me everything. <laughs> well, my big pet peeve is, first of all, you know, people love to vilify mothers for anything. Lately, I've, you know, I write a lot about chi- child influencers, kids on the internet. And my big pet peeve, and I want to write a big thing on this, but is, is lately there's been this sort of media narrative of like, oh, you know, the ki- the children of mom influencers are growing up and they're and they hate their mothers and mothers are who put stuff about that, you know, put post their kids on the Internet are evil and all this stuff. Now, I'll just disclaimer. I do think that a lot of parents could parents of both genders could, you know, have better privacy around the stuff that they share about their children, undeniably. However, as somebody that actually covers this industry, that's just a lie. Like the majority of kids content on the Internet is not put online. It's not parents. It's children putting themselves online. It's teenagers that have drunk the YouTube Kool-Aid for their entire childhood, starting a YouTube channel at, ch- at age 11 or an Instagram account or whatever. And we've also, we have this big tech has created this massive surveillance ecosystem where, you know, they, they harvest data on kids literally from the time they're in the womb. And so much of that data ends up being public and exposed in various ways, used against kids. And their own social media profiles are used against them. I mean, it's literally like, again, this like mass surveillance culture. But nobody ever blames big tech. Nobody ever says, wow, the amount of information and data about our kids that are online is horrifying. Let's go up against Google and Facebook. It's let's yell and vilify some mom, you know, for putting pictures of too many pictures of her kids, you know, birthday party on Facebook or something, which, again, I, I think that parents need to be better about privacy. But Mothers are not the problem here. It's the te- it's the tech companies, and you know they're the mo- but it's always the moms that are vilified. So always, always, and I and look, we talk about it on this podcast a lot. I I talk about whether or not moms should be putting their kids online. But at the end of the day, yes, these tech companies are creating these platforms and are the ones exploiting everyone, including mothers and children. Why do you think that we never actually vilify? them is it because well, we is it because we get to use their services for free and so we all look the other way but also no one does the actual reporting if you do the actual reporting you'll find that the children of a lot of these influencers are not at all upset at their parents for putting them online many of them have used their online fame from family channels etc to launch very successful careers in entertainment or launch businesses or they have really good boundaries with their parents and they know what's put online and know what's not put online or whatever Again, the majority of kids' content is kids putting themselves online. It's a lot of content from children, teenagers, you know, kids, children on social media. Like, that's a huge age group, literally. I mean, I have a lot of children following me on social media, you know? Like, kids have access to the internet at early ages. And by the way, even if you banned every single parent from social media, there's a massive amount of information about our kids on the internet. Kids' addresses are on the internet. There's Sports leagues, every single little league has like a YouTube channel. I found tons of preschools and elementary schools and secondary schools that have open and public Instagram accounts. Some were live streaming kids coming into school. Like there's so much information about kids online from clubs, from classrooms, from 
from groups like it's just to focus it on mothers and not this massive ecosystem is crazy and i you know i did this story a few years ago sorry i can rant about this forever but i did this story a couple years ago where i interviewed dozens of kids about the first time they googled themselves a significant amount of those kids were upset that they couldn't find more they they were mad that there wasn't more about them on the internet because they didn't feel like a person and this one kid was talking about how his goal was to get more google images more results of himself on google images because that made him feel like a grown up basically so Again, it's it, it but but again, but mothers are blamed. It, it's course. just like you don't nobody it, because it plays in that narrative plays into these stereotypes we have about women and shaming women, and nobody wants to think about the bigger picture or do the actual reporting on this topic. They just want to like vilify mothers, put a bunch of you know put a bunch of stuff on like ascribe a lot of feeling to you know, hundreds of thousands of kids that, that they've never interviewed and they sort of cherry pick like one or two people that like, yes, had had way too much, you know, yes, some parents, by the way, a lot of non-influencer parents, right? Like overshare. Boomers need to learn a lot about privacy on the internet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's just, yeah, I think, I think that the reason, just to answer your original question, um, that's never the focus is because because it's easier to blame women and, and mm-hmm. you know, sort of everyone's favorite pastime. It is everyone's favorite pastime. And do you think that's also why mommy bloggers consistently get written out of the history of the Internet? They yes. just never get what they they never get the acclaim that they deserve when it comes to the creation of the digital creator economy. Why is that? Yes. And by the way, I talked to a lot of I, I, I mean, I talked to many mommy bloggers themselves and their children who also were angry that their mother's work was never respected. And it's, it's, it's horrible. I, I think it's, I mean, I just think it's straight up misogyny. And like, look, I think people like, you know, there were certain people, I know Heather Armstrong has talked about this, that did overshare and kind of didn't understand what the internet would become and did sort of regret maybe the way they talked about their, their husbands or their personal relationships or their kids. We've all, that's not a, that's not a mommy problem. That is a social media problem, right? We've all had those moments online where we're like, oh, we probably shouldn't have shared that much, right? Um, but I think, yeah, I think the reason they never get their due is because we fundamentally hate women, honestly. And their work is not recognized. No, it's not. It's not. And that consistently happens to you. We talked about how it happens to you as a reporter, touched on what happened with Fox News and the reporters there. But is it still continuing right now? What kinds of comments and even threats do you get on a regular basis as a woman covering this industry? Yeah. Also, one other thing I just forgot to say about mommy bloggers, because a lot of people don't realize what those women did was very feminist. They were pushing back against this patriarchal women's media ecosystem that didn't acknowledge things like postpartum depression. And if it wasn't for mommy bloggers, we wouldn't have so much information like you know they normalize things like struggling to breastfeed hating your husband like not always loving your life as a mom like second guessing you know like just they did so much to like move the conversation about motherhood forward and they deserve a lot more credit um anyway i just had to say that um they deserve all they they deserve all the credit in fact i mean that was what the entire first season of under the influence was about just the creation of the digital creator economy and how it was all all mom bloggers 
All right, let's take let's take a quick okay. break. Yeah. Let's take a quick break in celebration of mom bo- mom bloggers. We're all gonna go. I'm gonna go pour one out for the mom bloggers, and we'll be back in a second with more Taylor Lawrence. So when we left, we were talking about how mom bloggers, the original OG mom bloggers, deserve so many accolades and how they got shit on by the rest of the internet and the rest of the world. I was asking you how you continue to be shit on by men and other women on the internet. You must have developed such a tough skin going through what you've gone through. But is the hate continuing? Oh, of course. I mean, it relentless it's but it's again it's it's so funny how it's all it's always based around my looks or my weight or my appearance or my age you know it's a lot of people that are that are it's just they make very misogynistic attacks um and it's frustrating as any woman that deals with it will tell you right you're like you log on every day and you just read hundreds of messages and comments and dms and things where people just say the most horrible stuff about you and you have to have an incredibly strong sense of self to not let it affect you do you think that you've acquired that strong sense of self how and how have you gotten it i am at a point where i don't read anything that people comment um about i try not to read book reviews and I get I get a shit ton of hate. I mean, I've got I've got people tell me I should be burned alive, that my children should be taken away from me. Do you look at it and just not care, or do you not look at it? Yeah, I definitely look at it because, um, it, yes, I definitely look at it because I, I I'm a reporter, and so I need to kind of um, basically I, I have to respond to messages. Often there's like really important news tips, or I'm trying to get in touch with people, so. I do read almost every message, um, although there's a lot. I, it's hard to keep up with everything, but I read definitely like hundreds, if not thousands of messages a day. Um, I don't know. I, you know, again, I have a very strong sense of self and I have a very strong like offline network. And, you know, when people say like, I'm ugly or I'm, you know, old or whatever, I'm just like, I'm, you're not living in reality. Like I live, or at least it's not affecting my reality. I live in LA. Like I have a great life. I, um, I don't feel like that. And that's not how I feel about myself. And so I just kind of, I recognize it for what it is, which is an attempt to tear me down and an attempt to kind of do what happened to Julia, right? Get, get, kick me off the internet, take away my voice, take away my space. And, and I think that's, it, it does work on so many women. And I don't, I don't accept that because I think that's fucked up and I'm not going to like seed ground because all these people want to call me old and ugly. So what if I am old and ugly, by the way? So what if I'm 80 and and like look not beautiful or something? Does that mean that my voice doesn't matter? That's so fucked up. That's why I never respond with like these weird age conspiracies where they're like, she's secretly 47. She's secretly 52. It's like, what if oh, I was? Shut what? up. Wait, there's age conspiracies about you? Are you kidding me? That's like a huge thing. Yeah. No, 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 no. How? I need to know. Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. There I, need to, I need to know the whole genesis of this. When did this start? And what, are, what are the with theories? Tucker. Well, so originally, again, they thought they were saying that I was in my 20s and I was in my, it was a girl in my 20s and I was a young girl in my 20s. And I was like, no, I'm not I'm in my 30s. And they were like, actually, she's secretly in her 40s or 50s. And 
I think, again, it goes back to this thing of like trying to make a woman seem older than she is, because in these people's misogynist ass minds, being old is somehow like a sin. You know, it's not like, oh, I hope I live long enough, especially somebody with health problems. I'm like, I hope I live to 50 or 60 or whatever. Right. Like, um, but but to them, it's like a way to discredit women because they can discredit women's voices. I mean, I just am dying because like they're constantly saying I'm too old to cover technology. Um, as <laughs> despite the fact that I'm the youngest um, female tech column, I'm the youngest. I think Joanna Stern are the youngest tech columnist period in the entire industry. Um, but you know, there's most male tech columnists are in their fifties and sixties, and they're never told to see space online. They're never told. You know, I love. I don't even want to name them, but there's so many iconic journalists, you know, male tech journalists that write great pieces in their 60s. Also, men are allowed to run the fucking country in their 70s and 80s. 80s. Could you imagine? Right. Whereas a woman is like past her prime or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. If she's if she's deemed too old and it's misogyny, it's it's just misogyny through and through. Well, and look, and uh, and then, as you mentioned, looksism. So, so many of the yeah. influencers who I talk to, it is their looks that are constantly criticized. Um, I think it goes, I don't hear as much ageism. I hear people criticized for their looks and then people criticized for their mothering ability. Yeah, which is, which is also, I mean, again, I don't have children, so there's, and I would never post them on the internet if I did, but I... You know, I, yeah, it's I mean, people love to judge mothers and fathers, of course, can do whatever they want. Fathers have never been judged since the beginning of fathers. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Not not a one. Not a one. I it's- love. Wait, do you know this girl, Clara Bell um, on Instagram? She has her Instagram is hold on. It's I wrote about her before. I'm obsessed with her. Um, it's her Instagram is well, she, her name is Claire Brown, but her Instagram is Clara Bell CWB. Okay. No, I don't know about her. Wait, Tell you me. You have to follow her. Hold on. Account. I'm gonna. I'm gonna follow her right now. Clara B- CWB. C L A R A B E L L E C W B. She's also very funny on threads, but she does these skits where she basically kind of role reverses, like you know, mothers versus fathers in different situations, and sort of has created this like alternative world where, like, I guess it's like a matriarchy world in her TikToks. Um, and I just I love her content because I think it often sort of shows how how biased, you know, the way we speak about parenting is. Oh, my gosh. OK, I'm following. She has two accounts. She has Clara Bell Talks and then she her has TikToks that she reposts. And then she yeah. has Clara Bell CWB. And oh, my gosh, now we're bring, we're bringing everyone a new rabbit hole, which usually the rabbit holes I give people are totally shitty. Like the time I told everyone to follow Ballerina Farm and people hate me for it. But this is a good rabbit hole. Yeah, she's great. Oh, I'm so here for this. I love it. It's great. Um, and maybe we'll even try to have her on the show. Oh, yeah. she's She would be wonderful. She was an OG blogger back in the day, too. Oh, my Fashion gosh. Blogger. Yeah, she's amazing. She's a really, really amazing person. Uh, well, who that brings me to something we like to ask, ask our guests. Uh, ask our guests. Who are you happy to be influenced by right now? Like, what are you enjoying? What do, how do you personally curate your feeds for joy? Or can you even do that? Yeah. I mean, I have a great time online Um, every day. I think like, I, um, I mean, I like to follow people that are funny, like people like Clara that kind of talk about issues 
in a funny way. Um, I'm just open my Instagram to see. Oh, I love this girl, Coco Moco. Mm. Um, I did her podcast recently. She's an amazing content creator that does this like pop culture analysis. Um, she's brilliant and her podcast Coco, is really Coco Moco. See, yeah. I, you know, the internet is so vast. How does anyone ever find anything? I know. Right? Well, I don't, we all have these like niche little like people that we love, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, she's host of Ahead of the Curve with Coco Moco podcast. Yes. Okay. Yes. Great. It's really good. Okay. I'm here for that. I'm here for that. It's Coco Moco. Moco with it. E at the end. Coco, mo, co, e. Yeah, it's yeah. Coco, M-O-C-O-E. Yeah. Um, what have you learned going on book tour for this book for Extremely Online, which everyone should be buying right now? Yes, buy it. Um, uh, gosh, I've just learned that like the book world is so archaic. Uh, it's really funny because I work in digital media, obviously, and like I'm used to those things happening at the speed of the internet and the book world is very, very slow. <laughs> slow. It's slow, man. It is a slow burn is what it is. My last question really is about TikTok. You have argued that TikTok is not going anywhere, nor should it go anywhere, nor should it be banned, because it is actually a very net positive uh, in terms of a lot of things like activism, um, and people being allowed to share views who normally wouldn't have a voice. Can you tell me a little well, bit about that? Actually, yeah. Just to be clear, that's not why I don't think it should be banned. I don't mm-hmm. think it should be banned because we do not live in China and our government does not control private enterprises mm. or control the app store. It would be an absolutely unprecedented um, thing to happen where suddenly the government can revoke access to certain apps based on pretty arbitrary things, like basically no evidence of wrongdoing. Um, the things that the government are accusing TikTok of in terms of just the data privacy stuff, they, they, there is no evidence for, uh, for what the government is alleging. Um, you know, there, or there's no proof, I should say, of, of what they're alleging. And so I think it's, yeah, I think it's a bad world where we suddenly start banning apps. Um, and also, if you want to ban TikTok over these alleged concerns about China, then you would have to also ban tons of gaming companies and other apps in the app store. They're also Chinese owned. So it's just, it's a very sticky situation also a lot as i reported at the time a lot of what was said about tiktok in the congressional hearings when the um the ceo was called up to testify last year was flat out misinformation it's it um it was like garbage news that said like oh tiktok was irresponsible for children's deaths or tiktok was doing xyz none of that stuff has been true i've reported many times how the news media has spread complete lies about alleged tiktok challenges so that is why I think that um, there's not evidence of a ban. There, there's not evidence, you know, there's just not whatever they're alleging. It's not there yet. Um, regardless of that, um, TikTok is definitely a hub for activism and for speech. And it has become the primary communication tool for essentially a generation of Americans. And um, I do think that the the sort of rabid desire, especially from the right to shut that down, um, is terrifying. I mean, it's similar to what's happening with Twitter, where Twitter was also this space for activism and progressive politics. And you had things like the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movement gaining so much power because of Twitter or the Me Too. I mean, I don't think Me Too would have been a thing without Twitter. Um, And so you see Twitter playing this key role in all these social justice movements. And then you have Elon Musk buying it and essentially shutting all of that down and um, amplifying, you know, 
using the platform to amplify far-right ideology. So I think it's, it's dark, and I don't want to see that happen to another platform. Um, no, and I, t- I, I totally agree. Even though I don't understand TikTok, it's not okay to hate the things that you don't understand. It's something I'm telling myself um, in, in my old age. Tell everyone how, where they can find you and your book and follow you and your truly excellent journalism. Yeah, well, you can find me on TikTok, Joe. I'll help you understand it. It's not too complicated. <laughs> oh, promise. God, Taylor, I'm <laughs> trying. I'm trying. It breaks my brain, and I want to understand it better. I do, because I want to I want to be a part of this attention economy. You would be. You would do really well, though, because you offer all of this really smart, like, thoughtful analysis and stuff, and that stuff does so well on TikTok. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, when we get off, you have my email address. So tell me some TikTokers to follow. So, I will. Because that's, that's what I have the hardest time with. I have the hardest time sourcing good videos. I feel like I get served a lot of shit. Yeah. Don't worry. You have to revamp your feed. I will help you. Um, but I'm on, I, just, I forgot to answer your question, but I'm on TikTok, Instagram, and now YouTube at Taylor Lorenz. Everywhere except Twitter. Don't follow me on there. I mean, I don't even I haven't I haven't tweeted since it became X or whatever the fuck they're calling it these days. I just it's it's not even signed in on any of my devices and I don't know the password. So it's over for me because I'll never find that password. It's it's done. I think and I think I signed up with like my current TV address, which is also a dead thing. So there's no way to ever retrieve my Twitter account. Sorry, Elon. Good for you. That's all I've got for you today, friends. The future of the internet is not great. I know that Taylor still believes in it, but I just wish it would all go poof. Tomorrow, I do. That's what I would like to happen. Thank you all for being here and listening to us. And, you know, go find a woman who is extremely online today and say something nice to her. Because... It doesn't happen enough. When people comment, they usually say the mean, terrible shit. And, you know, I think we all just want someone to say something nice. So that is your task. That is your task for today and this week. And we will talk more very, very soon. Have a great day. You deserve it.